Alright, we'll get started uh, with our lesson today. I am not usually the teacher of this class. Um, one is much more experienced than I am. His name is Ryan Vincent, but he's out of the state in Virginia to do a wedding, I believe. And so he enlisted my help. Um, and so I pray that I do justice to the text of Isaiah today. Good morning. We'll be going through the uh, text of Isaiah from the 13th chapter to the 27th chapter. So it's a large swath of text, and um, it's dealing with the judgment of the nations, and it's pretty epic. But before we jump in, I will uh, start us in in prayer. So if you would bow your head and close your eyes. (sighs) (coughs) Precious Jesus, we are grateful that this is another morning that you've brought us um, among your people to learn about you. And so, Father, I pray that you would not allow this time to be in vain. I pray that you would teach us what you would have us to know about you and your Son. And I pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we might know the hope of our calling, which is in Christ Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower your servant uh, to teach your word with accuracy and with clarity. I pray that uh, his goodness would make up for any of my errors I pray that um, the hearts of the men and women who are in this room today would be um, filled with love and joy for you and who you are, and also stirred up uh, for good works. And so I thank you for all of these things. I implore your kindly mercy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All righty. So, is this recording? Okay, it's recording. This is newfangled technology. I'm not used to it yet. So as I said before, we are continuing with our study in Isaiah uh, because apparently the Lord's work goes on even when his servants are not in the building. And so uh, we're going to be in the, as I said, the 13th chapter to the 22nd, 27th chapter, but I'm going to focus on the last four chapters of the book of Isaiah It is a passage of pretty much, it's a psalm uh, to God um, that is written by Isaiah, and it kind of, for me, in my reading, summarizes the entirety of what God speaks through Isaiah in the previous chapters. And so um, I'm going to make note and mention some of the themes that I've seen throughout the entirety of this section, and um, then kind of have recourse back to previous parts of the book and... um, also connect to other parts of Scripture so that we can see where Isaiah fits in the large story or the meta-narrative of the gospel of God. So um, if you would open up your Bibles to Isaiah 24, and I could not find my Bible this morning because I just moved into a new place and all of my things are scattered across the cosmos. So either I can read uh, the Bible in the American Standard Version, which is pretty much like the King James, and I'm sure you guys wouldn't like that, or we can, uh, someone can read the Bible from your translation. Um, I'll need someone to just start me off by reading Isaiah 24, um, 1. Well, before we do that, one of the things that I've noticed throughout this section, it's quite obvious in Isaiah, uh, especially when we're talking about oracles against nations and the fall of nations, a big theme throughout this section is the wrath of God. And so I'm going to spend a goodly bit of my time talking about the wrath of God, which... Um, 
rightfully so. I don't think we talk about a whole, whole lot in many churches, but I think it's very important that we at least uh, discuss it uh, from time to time in depth because we can't, I don't think, appreciate the mercy of God until we see the mercy on the backdrop of the wrath of God. The mercy of God shelters us and shields us from something, and it's not just, oh, honey, God's merciful, but it's God is merciful because he shields us from the wrath to come. And so I'm going to be talking a lot about uh, the nature of God's wrath as it has, uh, as I've seen it in the text. And so if someone, um, who wants to read for me, actually? Okay, if uh, you could read for me, Chase, uh, Isaiah, the 24th chapter, starting, we'll just go through the first verse. First verse. First verse. Okay. One thing that I noticed in the very first verse of this section, it's a summary statement of everything that he's talked about before. So you have, and I hope this doesn't, my recorder is charging because it had a low charger, and so I'm kind of tethered to the wall. <laughs> so we have, um, we have God, uh, who is being seen in this section as the judge. Uh, that's not a very good one. The judge of all Christmas colors. Thank you. Uh, the judge of all the nations. Yeah. Uh, so, excuse my handwriting. Um, so we see God as the judge of all nations. Notice it says that he makes the earth empty. It's not just the children of Israel. He's not just the God of this little pocket of Palestine in the world. He's the God of all. Everyone's going to have to be held accountable to him. And one thing that I noticed first off, and especially when, if you read through the text this week, um, chapters 13 and 14 really illustrate this to me, um, the active nature of God in uh, pouring out his wrath on people. I think that a lot of times um, we kind of shy away from thinking that God is like actively demonstrating his anger against a rebellious people who have spit in his face. And so we hear terms like, well, uh, in terms of hell, well, hell is merely separation from God or uh, something of that, like I'm, I'm thinking of a uh, C.S. Lewis has a quote where when he's talking about people departing into judgment, he says, well, that's kind of like people come to God and either someone will say, uh, God, it's thy will be done, and then they go to heaven, and then it's God says if someone comes to him and does not want him, it's thy will be done, and then they depart into everlasting fire. So it's not really that God has like anger and that he's actually accomplishing like demonstrating his justice and his judgment and his power and his wrath in a people. It's more like, eh, I don't want to, but, you know, I have to. There's something that's forcing me to have to punish you. And I, we see, and I have a few examples from the text, we see that God is actually quite active in the outpouring of his wrath. We find in Isaiah, the 13th chapter and the 23rd verse, it says, I will, this is my favorite. I like reading it in the King James because it just sounds awesome. It says, I will sweep them with the besom of destruction, saith the Lord of hosts. Doesn't that just sound awesome? I read that in the ESV and it said, I'll sweep them with the broom of destruction. It just didn't have the same flair to it. 
<laughs> and then Isaiah 13, uh, yeah, 13.30 says, and the, firstborn of the poor, uh, and the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety, and I will kill thy root with famine, and, the remnant shall be, and thy remnant shall be slain. And that's God actively like, bringing famine upon the nation of Philistia. In uh, uh, the 15th chapter, in the 9th verse, it says, For the waters of Demon are full of blood, for I will bring yet more upon Demon. He's talking about bringing wars upon, I can't remember the nation, I think it was Moab in uh, chapter 14, rather, not 15, excuse me. And then in uh, chapter 19, it says, I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians. And then later on in the verse, it says, I will destroy the council of the Egyptians. And then in uh, Psalm, I'm going to switch books, it says, Psalm, the second chapter in the ninth verse, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In Psalm 52, 5, it says, But God will break you down forever, and he will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. And so so we see that uh, biblically, and there are texts in the New Testament as well that I'll venture into later, but there are texts that show us that God is actually rather active in in bringing wrath upon the children of disobedience. And so it's not something that we should shy away from. I think we don't want God to seem like this grumpy old miser who just goes off. But we find that it's not just him going off on people. Like God has patience and kindness and forbearance, but like he has a limit. And he has a limit where he says no more. And God actually has anger toward people who resist his laws and his righteous decrees. And so that's not something that I think we should be ashamed of or shy away from. The second thing that we see here, if you'll read for me, uh, Chase, the second through the... Oh dear, I had this sectioned off. Oh, it's in my notes. The second through the 14th verse. The earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and withers, the the exalted of the earth languish, the earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth, its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth uh, inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers, all the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the revelers has stopped, the joyful heart is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate, the entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine, all joy turns to gloom, Mm -hmm. all gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins, its its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, or as when gleanings are left after the great harvest. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west, they claim the Lord's majesty. Okay. Alrighty, so we see here, aha, we see here that God is the judge of all the earth and that all the nations, we'll just write down a few nations here listed in the sections of Isaiah, all the nations, that would be Babylon, okay, Philistia, Moab, 
Egypt, Judah and Israel, and like there's Ethiopia and a few other nations that I can't remember because they're not important. Um, <laughs> that we find that there is in every nation a universal judgment of God, and not only is it every nation, but it's all the peoples of the nation. I've heard I was. Um, a few years ago, I went to a Passover Seder, and the Passover Seder was held by, like, a Jew Jew. He wasn't a Christian Jew. He was, like, a Jewish Jew. And so, um, uh, <laughs> sorry. I don't know why I find that so funny. But anyway, um, uh, we, he was holding the Passover Seder, and there's this uh, custom called the hiding of the Ophicum, and, and you put this uh, little matzah cracker between two matzah crackers and he was talking about the priests and the kings and he was saying everybody wasn't corrupt in Israel it was just like the kings and the priests and the leaders and they were just the corrupt ones but everybody else were pretty good people and so when the prophets came they were prophesying against them the corrupt power structures and I think that's right to an extent because in that culture bless you and in that culture you had like kings would be the ones that said we're going to worship this idol and so worship him but also you have the people of the nations are just as guilty. They could have resisted the worship of false idols in Israel. They could have said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to worship Yahweh. But the people followed suit and worshiped idols. And God uses the term under every green tree over and over, especially in the book of Ezekiel. And so we find um, that everyone is guilty. And I'm going to write that in big, big. I write things because it stills my nerves when I write things. So just bear with me. You have everybody is guilty before God, and everyone's guilty because, I like verse um, 5, where it says, The earth is polluted under the inhabitants thereof because of the transgression of the laws. They have violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant. Everyone has broken the covenant of God. Every single person. And I found this the first time I was reading through this. I, I stopped and I was like, what? What are you talking about? Because... Um, if you remember, this is like God speaking of all the nations, the entirety of the earth, and I can't think of a time. Um, can anybody remember any prophets that God sent to Ethiopia? Raise your hand. Okay. Can anybody think of any prophets that God sent to like Babylon? I think there might be like a few. Like uh, Assyria, Daniel went to Assyria. So there's like two people that God <laughs> sent out. Oh, uh, uh, Jonah went to Assyria. And so we have God holding the entire earth accountable for not keeping his law and not holding to his statutes and transgressing his covenant. I don't remember reading in the scriptures where God came to the forefathers of the Philistines and said, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so I was trying to, I was wrestling with like, what do you mean by um, they've broken your covenant? And I was reminded of the scripture in uh, Romans, the first chapter, where it says that uh, in the created order, God's divine power and his Godhead have been seen so that men are without excuse. They don't have an apologetic. They, don't have, they can't make an argument as to why um, they are not guilty before God. He says, I've made myself abundantly clear to you that, that if you would cry out and seek me with your whole heart, I, I would reveal myself to you, but you just refuse to do it. It says that they saw that and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so we find that... Um, Everyone, where we have the children of Israel, particularly, they have a specific kind of redemptive action happening in them, which God doesn't do with the other nations, where he gives them the law, where he sends them. I was reading on the Internet, and, you know, the Internet's spurious information, so you can't 
you know, take that with a drop in the bucket. But, you know, it listed 55 at least prophets mentioned by name in the Old Testament. And that's not including like the, what, 500 or something prophets that were hidden in the mountain by Obadiah and other things. You have prophet after prophet after prophet that God is sending to the children of Israel. And he sent no prophets to any of these other nations or like two prophets to any of these other nations. And yet he holds them all accountable. And a lot of people kind of cringe at that. I was reading, I'm in um, Asian philosophy in school, and we just finished um, teaching, learning through uh, Confucianism. And one of the analects of Confucius say, you know, one of the worst things you can ever do is make, get somebody in trouble after not telling them what you wanted them to do. You tell them first, and then you can punish them. And, like, God just doesn't do that. Like, he's, he's like, I'm not going to give you this special, relation, this special revelation, but I'm going to hold you accountable to it. And he holds them accountable to it because they're all guilty, because they all are uh, rebels against him, and he doesn't owe them that. I, I think a lot of people think, like, God, you, uh, uh, people can't go to hell who have never heard the gospel because uh, they, uh, you know, it's just mean, it's just not fair. Like, God doesn't owe you that. He doesn't owe you sending missionaries to you. He doesn't owe you prophets. He doesn't owe you giving you light and guidance. Um, like, it is God's extreme mercy and kindness, which is on his terms and not ours, that he gives anyone grace and mercy and faith and repentance. And so uh, the wrath of God is universal because the sin-guiltiness of man is universal. Uh, Let's move on to the next. Not only is it those two things, but the wrath of God, I found in this section, is present. I don't have a passage here, but I was thinking through uh, these texts in... um, intention with the sixth chapter of Isaiah where it says that as Isaiah is going to preach all of these things to the children of Israel that God's going to harden the hearts of the people so you have God's wrath presently while Isaiah is saying God's wrath is coming repent 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 and their hearts are just getting harder and harder and harder and harder because of God's present wrath I think a lot of times we think that God's wrath is only when Jesus comes and cracks the sky and there's fire and brimstone and there's seals and and you know, two-headed lions or something like that. And so we, we think that the wrath is way out there. But um, the book of John says in the 36th chapter that he that believes in the Son shall have eternal life, but he that believeth not in the Son, uh, it says the wrath of God abides on him, present tense. Like, it's a, like when you see somebody who does not believe in God, like the wrath of God is on them at that present moment. Uh, Romans 1, the first, uh, Romans 1, and the 18th verse says that the wrath of God is revealed against the uh, unrighteousness and sinfulness of men. Uh, it is a present reality. I think it's Ephesians 5, 16, that says that, um, it says that, you know, fornicators and the covetous and all those viceless shall not inherit the earth. And then it says, be not deceived. For this reason, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That there is a present wrath that brings about in the hearts of people a rebellion that causes God to um, bring judgment upon them. There is a hardening that happens, and I think that we see that in this text. Not only is the wrath of God uh, present, but the wrath of God, and this is going to be a weird one for us because we don't hear this very often, the wrath of God is a good thing. The wrath of God is good. Um, uh, uh, Chase, could you read? Uh, we're going to switch chapters. We're in chapter 25. 
and read chapter 25, just 1 through 5. Okay, and could you read uh, verse 9 through 12? And that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under Him as straw is trampled down in the manure. How far did you want to read? Uh, actually, you can stop there. That's fine. Um, Notice this is a in twenty five from twenty five to twenty seven Isaiah breaks into a praise. He's giving God all the praise here, and um, he is praising God for firstly his mercy and his loving kindness. But also, I find it very odd that he's praising God because he's tearing down fortified cities. And then in verse ten, he says he's praising God because he's going to stomp Moab like water in a dunghill. That's weird to me, like. God, I praise you because you're going to stump them into the dunghill. Like, <laughs> like I, I was reading through some of the Psalms, like uh, Psalm 2 that I read before, where it says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people uh, imagine a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? And then it uh, goes on, it says, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. And it also says, he that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. This is a psalm of David, and he's praising God because God's going to laugh at the nations. He's going to break them in pieces. Uh, The last section of that psalm says, um, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed are they that trust in him. Like, when's the last time you heard a um, worship leader put that in the lyric? Like, I want to hear Steve Broadway sing some of that. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Yeah. So... (laughs) Uh, And and there are many psalms like this, though. The first psalm is similar, where it says that the righteous are going to uh, be blessed and that the wicked are going to perish. Psalm 3 um, talks about breaking the teeth of the wicked, which I found hilarious. Uh, Psalm 9 says the wicked shall be turned unto hell and all the nations that forget God. Um, Psalm 27 is really controversial because in the Passover Seder, um, you're supposed to read Psalm 27 in its entirety. And in that psalm, it talks about... It says, uh, what does it say? It says, pour out your wrath on all the nations that do not know you. And a lot of liberal Jews are like, that's not very nice. I don't like that. And like we find multiple times in the Psalms where David is just like, destroy the wicked. There's a psalm, there's a psalm in Psalm 139, 22. Oh, it's right here. It says, uh, do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am I not grieved at those who rise up against thee? There is something 
that should be in us, and I think that this is odd, and I feel kind of odd saying this, there should be kind of a revulsion in us to people that make light of God and blaspheme God, and there should be a desire in us that God would come and make all things right and make all things new, and that uh, his, the means by which he does that, the means by which he has ordained that he should bring restoration to the world is in his wrath. Like, even when you think about the cross of Christ, like, the cross of Christ is only powerful. I think when you remove the wrath of God from Christ, you just have Jesus hanging on the cross for no purpose. But the Bible says a few times that Christ was put forth as a propitiation. That means that he is someone who turns away the wrath of God, that he has absorbed the wrath in his body, and that when we are in him, we are safe from the wrath to come. That the beauty of the cross is that the wrath of God exploded on Calvary. And so there is something in us that recognizes that when um, I see Christ coming in glory with his holy angels to judge the wicked, that when I see him, I know I'm going to a place where the wicked shall cease from troubling. And when I see him in judgment, I know that the weary are going to be at rest. That's what we find in, um, I don't know if you caught that that hymn reference, but that's all right. that, that's, uh, I'm trying to remember what chapter this is in. probably should consider my notes. But um, this is what Isaiah talks about in one of these chapters. One of mercy. Um, chapter 25, uh, where he's talking about the, the poor are going to be relieved from being um, um, beaten up by their enemies. You have this archetype, and I have to point this out, this isn't a poor people are good, rich people are bad kind of paradigm. The poor and the rich are archetypes used in the scriptures where uh, stereotypically it's the rich who are corrupt and who pervert justice and who abuse people and extort money from people. And then it's usually the poor who are so needy that all they have is God. And so the poor are an archetype of people who are in need of God constantly, who say like, nothing that I have is, is valuable or mine, like I need God. I need him. That's all I have. And so it's saying that these people who are in need of God, who are being um, persecuted all the day long, like Paul says, that God is going to bring a peace and a safety and a quiet to those who have taken refuge in him. And that leads me to moving on from the wrath section, in case all of you were wary and weary of it. this, this is where, where uh, Isaiah, I wanted to call him Paul for some reason, he begins to uh, talk about faith in God, the opening, if you chase, let's see here, verse, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 26, all this paper, if you could read chapter 26, 1 through, 1 through 4. Mm-hmm. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. 
Yes. So what um, Isaiah begins to do, especially in 26 and 27, um, this section from 24 to 27 is called the tale of two cities where he compares the lofty city of people who are self-sufficient, people who don't need God, people who have made wealth for themselves and think that they are secure from any of God's wrath, and then the, the strong city or the New Jerusalem where it's filled with people who are needy for God, who um, are desperate for his help, who have nothing besides him, and he gathers all of of those people, and then he makes war on the on the uh, lofty city. And so, um, what we find is that the one who enters into the gates of the New Jerusalem are those who have faith in God. Um, I think this is a beautiful picture and an under, shows an understanding on the part of Isaiah long before Paul and long before Jesus entered into the world. That it shows there is. Um, a necessity of faith and a centrality of faith to enter into the city of God. It says that the people who are the residents in this city are those who trust in the Lord. The Lord is there. How much time do I have? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. We have time. Okay, sorry. I have to make sure I'm in my parameters because I can be long-winded from time to time. Um, we, where was I? <laughs> Thank you. Um, we have to have faith in God. It's about the, this hymn that's being sung is like, we've trusted in you. And what he begins to do is build this city of Jerusalem to be a strong city with walls of salvation. And he's showing like the, the kingdom that God is about to bring into the world is so much better than the little hovels that you've built for yourself and then put a gold star on it and called it your kingdom. That God has a powerful kingdom, a majestic kingdom, a kingdom that is safe, and a kingdom that is free of wickedness and sorrow. And in the, in the 27th chapter, he says he's going to wipe tears from everyone's eyes, and etc., etc. And he waxes on about the glory of the city. And what Isaiah is trying to get us to see is that um, what God's kingdom is, is so great that why would you want to stay in, in, in the fortified city? Like, there's nothing there except wicked people in the fortified city. And if you stay there, God's going to destroy you. He, he's saying that God's kingdom is an ultimate reality. His reign is going to be so absolute. And that if you want um, to have joy, if you want to see, what does the psalm say? If you want to see um, long days, like, you need to find, hide yourself in God. Um, let's see here. Uh, 27. Let me consult my notes. Sorry. Let's see here. Let's see. And let's see. I'll have you read again, Chase. If you could read for me 26. Oh, okay. That's why I couldn't find it. 26, 20, and 21. Okay, so we see here, I, I have this marked in my notes, it says, the part that says, come people, enter into the chambers and shut the door until God's indignation is passed over. I ask the question, how are you going to hide, like, in your house from God's wrath? 
Like, how does that work? And I obviously don't think that Isaiah is talking about literally hiding in your house from God's wrath. I think that, not Paul, Isaiah, I think that Isaiah has a, um, uh, he has a bigger picture in mind. Maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about, but we have the fullness of the understanding that the one in whom we find shelter is Christ. Like I just read in um, the second psalm where it says, uh, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And then it says, um, blessed are they that trust in him because his name is a refuge. Like the name of Jesus is the only way you are going to escape the wrath of God is by hiding yourself in Jesus. And we find this even further, hiding in God himself, which we find in Jesus. And this is brought to bear even further in Isaiah, the 27th chapter. Um, if you could read Isaiah 27, 2 through 6. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. Or else, let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, in verse 5, um, how did that read in verse 5? That was different from verse 5. Uh, or else, let them come to me for refuge. Mm-hmm. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. What I noted, what's in my translation and what's in, like, I think the actual Hebrew is, let them take a hold of my strength. Like, the only way that you can make peace with God is by taking a hold of God's strength. And the question that I had is, well, uh, what, how, do, how do you do that? What does that even look like? Like, how does one take a hold of God's strength? So if someone will go to... Um, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and let me actually find it on my cell phone since I don't have my Bible, since I'm not spiritual today. I would hope I'm spiritual since I'm teaching this class. And if someone can start at the 18th verse... And read down, it's going to be a long passage, but read down to the 31st verse. First. <coughs> Who wants to read that for me? Okay. Chapter 118? Mm-hmm. Through the end? Yes. Okay, for the word of, of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Mm-hmm. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Mm -hmm. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Mm -hmm. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. Can you read 24 again a little slower? Yeah. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ 
the power of God mm -hmm. and the wisdom of God. Okay, you can stop, and then we'll, we'll keep on reading it. Notice it says in uh, 1 Corinthians that Christ is the power of God. I, I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I think it, it teaches the deity of Christ and also teaches the distinction that Christ has uh, between him and the Father. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but it says that Christ is the power of God. And Christ is the wisdom of God. And then it goes down, and we can skip all of this. Let's start um, back at 29 and read 29 through 31, please. Okay. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to, who, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So notice that Christ is the power of God, according to Paul. And he also has become for us wisdom and redemption and salvation. And I would include within the redemption and salvation piece the power of God. Like Christ came to us because we would not otherwise lay hold of the power of God, I don't believe. Christ has... Ooh, make sure I don't turn that off. Ryan will be wroth with me. Okay, uh, we cry, we lay a hold of Christ. He's the power of God. He's the one by whom we have peace with God. God says, lay on my strength, lay a hold of my power. And the way we do that is by faith in Christ. And so, that's really all I have. And we have a long time before entering. Do you have any questions? I didn't expect for this to be so short. <laughs> well, you didn't drag it out. Yeah, it's true. And I could have, but I didn't want to bore you with the minutia. And I thought I was already talking for a long time. Um, so absolutely no questions. Okay. Why do you think people have such issues with the wrath of God? Mm. What was that? Why do you think people have such issues with the wrath of God? Oh, that is a wonderful question. I think people have an issue with the wrath of God because people have an issue with them being sinners. Like, people don't want to have to admit that I'm a sinner, that I have... I was talking to one of my friends who... Well, he's not a friend. I use that term very loosely, and I shouldn't. Um, he is an atheist, like antitheist. He is one of those guys that you know he knows that God exists. He just does not like the idea of submitting to God. And so we were talking about, um, about hell and about sin. And he was like, I just couldn't imagine that God would throw somebody in hell for an eternity for a, a finite punishment. And I was like, like, that's not even the point. That's not even how the Bible talks about sin. The issue is that uh, the book of James says that he that said, thou shalt not steal, said, thou shalt not murder. And that the action of sin is that you are a wicked rebel against God, that you are a God-hater to your core, by nature a child of wrath. Um, and so people have to come to terms with, I'm a wicked sinner. Like the psalm says, from the womb we are estranged, and from the breast the wicked tell lies. And we don't like that. We think we're good people. And so we want to make um, little laws for ourselves that we even break ourselves, uh, where God says uh, in, in Romans, the first chapter, like, or is it, the, it might be the second chapter, or maybe the third. It's in, it's in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> um, 
the Bible says that like people don't even keep the laws that they make themselves. People don't even live according to their conscience. And so I, I had this argument with a, a lady from high school where she was like, oh yeah, you know, we're good people. We don't need God telling us what to do. Like, I'm okay. And it's like, really? Are you? Like, do you believe that lying is bad? And when's the last time you told a lie? Oh, probably this morning. So like, you don't even keep up with your own own conscience. You don't even keep up with the own laws that you break yourself. And so the issue that we have to wrestle with is that we're dead in sins and trespasses and that we need somebody to bring us back to life. And that people, people wrestle with that uh, so much because that gives us, we have to give over control. Oh, and then, and then also when you talk about um, the wrath of God, you have to deal with God as judge. And that's God as king, which means he calls the shots. And you're not the ruler of your life. And you can't talk about how you're going to raise your children and how you're going to do your marriage. And so when you actually have to deal with God and his holy character and you find that you pale in comparison and you're like um, Isaiah says in the 27th chapter, like you're bramble before him as you're approaching him in battle, uh, people don't like to, like to deal with that reality. And it comes with a, and see, I can wax, this probably use the rest of the class now. But um, um, especially since the Enlightenment humanistic era where we're saying humans are, we're great, and all we need is more education, and all we need is like better like social systems that can take care of us. And we found that, and my, I continually ask myself, like, I feel like, Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and Mussolini were all like really educated and and didn't have like terrible well Hitler had a kind of terrible childhood but um, but like they didn't they weren't like super poor or super uneducated or super unfortunate they were just wicked and there are lots of people who like not even those extreme examples but you know people who just do terrible things it's not because they were raised poor like i i uh, was watching a documentary about human sex trafficking and it said like one of the biggest places where that happens isn't in poor slummy neighborhoods it's like in the basement of wealthy people's houses and so the issue isn't like wealth and the issue isn't about education the issue is about the human heart and um like I'm dealing with this in my Asian philosophy class right now where the, in the Asian paradigm you have this kind of central idea that humanity is good and so that we can, we can kind of work with nature in that way or work with heaven in that way because we have this natural goodness in us. But um, I find that when you actually look at human nature, even without the Bible, but then especially when the Bible brings our nature to light and that it's bound by sin, enslaved to sin, um, that you just can't come to that conclusion. Yes. Any more questions? <laughs> yes. Oh, girl. <laughs> yes. No, pregnant women are gashed open. Yeah. As a result of God's wrath, whether or not he causes it or 
And a big thing I've noticed when hearing kind of critics of the violence in the Old Testament or the wrath of God is like, oh God, he even says kill the women and children. And that's once again this modern sensibility that says that for some reason women and children aren't sinners and that women and children aren't under the wrath of God and that women and children are somehow better than men, that we can't, that God can't exert his justice against them. And so... Um, yeah, I just think that having to conform our mindset to the biblical mindset and see, like, one, I don't think I wrote guilty, uh, see our <laughs> guiltiness before a God, I think that that is um, um, important for reading the Bible instead of reading it through our modern lenses. Any more questions or comments? I was reading the whole Isaiah, the 13 through this. Mm-hmm. I stopped after a few chapters because it was just a lot it's of overwhelming. devastation. I was yeah. like, well, this is not a great start to my book. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's encouraging. I was like, yeah. well, flip over New Testament. But I think understanding the wrath and the sin, our sinful nature even more, especially over the last years, has helped me in my relationships better. In any way, whether it's with a friend or with my children or whatever, because I understand that whether, you know, if I saw them as, well, it's my kids, they've got to be good. Well, mm-hmm. I said, no, my kids are, they were born sinful. Yeah. Therefore, and it's not that I didn't know that before, but understanding that more helps me to understand, mm-hmm. you know, why we need Jesus more, why we need to talk about that more, or, you know, I can't just 100% say, oh, but you're such a good kid, you've got a good heart. No, you're just. <laughs> You are dead in sins and trespasses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that <laughs> I think that that is so huge in all of our relationships because we want to, you know, think of the best in people and we want to think of people as good and they're not that bad, but like when you really look at at God's point of view, which is hard because we're limited. Uh, but you realize like, wow, like, we're sinners, and when we are sinners, and the way the Bible talks about it, like Romans 8, um, the mind that's according to the flesh is, uh, the spirit is, no, it's flesh first. The mind that's according to the flesh is death, but the mind that's according to the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's according to the flesh cannot submit itself to the law of God. It, like, it says that he that is according to the flesh cannot please God. And when you think about yourself in those terms, you find yourself desperate for the grace of God. Because when you realize, hey, I, like uh, in chapter 27 of Isaiah, it talks about, I think it's chapter 27, it talks about um, the dead of the inhabitants of the world, and it talks about the dead of the children of Israel. And it says, it actually might be 26, where it says that, 
Let me find it. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, it's probably going to take me too long to find it. But it says, um, it says, their dead, talking about the inhabitants of the world, are dead and they shall not rise, they shall be dead forever. And then it goes down and it talks about the dead of, the, of his remnant and it says, thy dead shall rise. And I was wondering, like, what's the nature of this dead? Like, are they, are they different? And so, kind of, and if somebody has a differing understanding of the text, please let me know, because I'd love to hear it. But it seems that, like, everyone is dead in light of God's devastation of the world, and that the people who are finding God as a shelter and a savior are those whom God has raised from the dead. Otherwise, they would just be dead and, and without hope. And God is their only hope in the world. And so when he breathes life into them, there is a gratefulness. There is a longing and a dependence on him. Like, he is my life. He is my refuge. He is my shelter. I, I don't have anything apart from him. David says, I have no good apart from thee. Um, and I love that passage. Yes. And I think the problem for me is not knowing or not accepting the fact that we're fallen and mm-hmm. we're basically you know, wounded and, and evil, mm-hmm. but how do you live in the world constantly knowing God's grace and not becoming a crazy jihadist or mm-hmm. someone who's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. you're all going to yeah. die anyway, you're no good. I am so glad you asked that because that was one of my points and I forgot to say it. So God bless you. Um, I think the huge thing, because I, you know, I, I definitely believe, and I'm weird anyway, because from a young age I've always kind of enjoyed the wrath passages in the Bible, so I'm weird. My favorite story in the Bible is First Corinthians, not First Corinthians, First Chronicles 21, when God is like destroying all the people of Israel because David took a census. Favorite story. I don't know why. <laughs> it just is. I'm weird. I get it. Um, you probably knew that before this time. But um, I would, though I recognize the glory and beauty and majesty that is in the wrath of God, I would never like wish, like, I pray that the wrath of God just comes upon you, because when you consider your own estate, and usually what causes that kind of self-righteous jihadist, if you will, kind of understanding is you forget your own estate. You forget, like, I'm a sinner that was in need of grace. I'm a sinner that was under the wrath of God. And so when you... um, Consider, like, I needed Jesus. I pray that God be glorified in the demonstration of his wrath. Um, But I pray also that he demonstrates his wrath on those who are enemies of him in Jesus. That's my my prayer. I pray that he demonstrates his wrath on them in Christ. That Christ would absorb the wrath that he's poured out and has stored up for them on the day of judgment. And so understanding the centrality of Jesus in their salvation and understanding that, um, that... like, I would not, if it hadn't been for Jesus, I would have been swept away. Um, it really softens you. And then there is that balance between the, um, you know, I hate those that hate thee, and, you know, have mercy upon them, O Lord. And the softness comes from knowing that I'm a sinner who's, who needs the Lord. So, uh, did I answer your question? Yeah, it is. It's just hard. You have to live it every day. Uh-huh. And hide in God, or mm-hmm. you're going to go the wrong direction. Yes. You have no idea what wrath is being poured out in anybody's life. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of us um, advertise the pain in our lives? Mm-hmm. Instead, we put a public face forward mm-hmm. and saying life is wonderful. So, 
you know, I, I do, obviously I work with a lot of um, anti-theists, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's not my place or my problem mm -hmm. to visit the wrath of God. That's mm -hmm. God's place and problem. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, I would completely agree. And we leave it up. I think I was wanted to tack that on to your answer, but your husband did it because he's wonderful. But um, <laughs> but um, yeah, that. <laughs> but I mean, that is so true. One uh, remembering that like wrath and judgment—that's for the judge. And so, like, we preach the gospel, and we pray that, once again, that they would receive the grace of God through God pouring out his wrath in Christ. And, and that's my prayer for whoever I come by. And however God wants to um, exact his judgment, that's his business. And we, we do what he's told us to do, and he'll take care of the rest. Mm -hmm. Let's see what time it is. Ooh, glory. We filled up some time. God, I praise you. Um, do we have any more questions or comments? Uh, I just, on, on the thought of, you know, people having uh, difficulty with um, how could a loving God allow somebody, who, uh, you know, to go to hell or send somebody to hell in mm -hmm. active tense um, who has never heard the gospel? Or how could God destroy entire nations of women and children? Um, I've heard that question asked a lot from, uh, you know, some of my friends. And even, you know, within within the church, like, that's a that's a good question to ask, and it's mm -hmm. an honest question to ask. Definitely. I think it's good that we um, ask that and, and be authentic with that. I think another question that we need to ask is, um, what is my responsibility post-cross? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, God has ordained the church. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're asking a question, even amongst believers, like, why why would God send somebody to, to hell mm -hmm. um, who's never heard the gospel? Um, I don't think that's a bad question. I think a better question is, what can I do to, to help? Mm -hmm. you know? yes. To his point, you were, you were saying, well, did, did God send a prophet? To Babylon, Philistia, and Mount Omar of Egypt. Sure he did. Mm -hmm. He sent the entire nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. The entire nation of Israel was set apart as a priest mm -hmm. to mankind. Yeah, you're right. Accurate. I have no disagreements with that. when Jim says, sometimes a prophet needs a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't consider that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was that a question? No. Or that was just a comment. Okay, because I was like, I can't answer that because I don't. <laughs> yes, yes. I just couldn't tell which one it was. So. Um, no, just the, the thought, like, that's a great question to ask. Oh, yeah. And, and I think we should all, it's okay to ask that and to wrestle with that. But, uh, you know, a better question is, what can I do? Mm -hmm. How can I take the gospel to these unreal yeah. people? Yeah. I see what you're coming And yet there are those times, you know, I've, we all have friends that are godly within their own faith mm -hmm. tradition. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, a mom or, or uh, you know, the uh, rabbi, et cetera, who are serious about 
follow it, and then the question is, well, are they saved? Not my problem to answer. That is, that's not at my pay grade. Mm -hmm. uh, I honor those men and women for their their dedication, their their path. At the same time, knowing that Christ is the answer. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Hmm. Okay. Well, with that, we filled up time well. I'm glad I had a question and answer time. I was not prepared for being short. All righty. So I'm going to lead us out in prayer, and then if we have any more questions, you can come to me or whoever else or complain about me next week to Ryan. Um, all right. Let's uh, beseech the Lord. Father God, I thank you for this time. Um, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And I thank you for your judgment and your wrath, particularly as it has been poured out in Christ for our sake. Um, I am so grateful that you have um, called us from darkness into light, that you have taught us that Christ is a refuge from the stormy blast. And I pray that we would learn to trust him more, that we would make him our refuge in every moment, not just in the good, uh, not just in the bad, but in every <coughs> moment of our life that we would find him as our shelter and our refuge. Uh, for you said in your word, blessed are they who trust in him. I pray that this time was useful to your servants. Um, and I pray that you increase them in affection toward you, that we all might glorify you um, with our love for one another and our faith in Christ Jesus. And I pray all these things in his name with whom you and the Spirit reign. Amen.